listening to Impact Insights, a communications podcast by the Impact Agency. Hello, I'm Nicole Webb, the CEO of the Impact Agency, and welcome back to our Impact Insights podcast. I have with me again today, Francis Dwyer, my general manager. Hi, Fry. Hi there. How are you going? Good, good, good. We've just both come back from two weeks of leave, so we're a little bit... Um, um, I feel a bit silly in the head today for some reason. I'm calling it holiday brain. That's holiday how I'm branding brain. it. Yeah, a little bit, little bit of like casual vagueness coming into my week this week, including a minor car accident earlier in the week. I think I just wasn't quite concentrating hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> didn't you? You mentioned it to one of our uh, clients that's from England. You called it a bingle, and she didn't know what a bingle was. Yeah, I had to then realize that I, I wanted to say bingle in the message because I was actually on a, on my way to meet with her and it was my first face-to-face meeting since March for work, as in not virtual. And I thought, can't wait to see. This is a client that used to be a colleague and great contact. And I made a point of being really early, which meant that I had time for a minor bingle. Um, so I texted her and didn't want to put the word car words car accident in the text to say, I'm on the phone to the insurer and she was thoroughly confused and went, oh, no worries, you know, I've got some extra time and what's a bingle? <laughs> and then when I told her, she promptly freaked out, which is why I didn't write car accident in the first place. But, uh, yeah, funny those little cultural differences that you don't think about with our slang. I don't even know if it's um, a cultural thing because um, Michaela, my niece, has come down from Queensland mm-hmm. um, to see um, to see family and I mentioned to her, that you'd had a bingle and she said, what's a bingle? So maybe, oh, okay. maybe, maybe it's an age Is it a I grew up in the Western suburbs thing? Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Bingle just sounds know. gentler. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I would use the word bingle, so it's okay, Francis. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for validating hey, that. <laughs> um, one of the things that um, I wanted to talk about um, today, and um, I know you've got some things on your mind as well that um, you want to talk about as well. Um, uh, it's around the changing media landscape. We um, mm. we know, you know, News Corp suspended the print editions of 60 community titles back in April and the following month they axed more than 100 print papers and closed 14 mastheads completely. Mm. Um, you know, and then yesterday, Bauer closed Harper's Bazaar, L in Style, Men's Health, Women's Health, Good Health, um, NW and OK Magazine. You know, there's probably NW Magazine. We don't really <laughs> care that, that that closed, with all due respect. But I'm I wonder if, uh, yeah. I was just going to say, I remember that the, our main consumption of that title and its counterparts was when we used to fly back and forth from Melbourne for client meetings prior to the pandemic meeting it's like that ritual of the flight back at the end of a long Sydney to Melbourne to Sydney day and you'd buy the trashy mags before you go yeah. to the flight <laughs> we did. We did. maybe we weren't the only ones doing that <laughs> and when we were sitting when we weren't sitting next to each other we somehow managed to swap the magazines halfway through the journey yeah but, exactly um, yeah yeah nothing like a good bit of trash reading um so I guess what I wanted to talk about was what, you know, what are those knock-on effects from having local newspapers close, these magazines closed? I know the Herald ran a story um, yesterday about the closing of the Bow magazines and Kelly Rush, who's the magazine's former editor-in-chief, 
said um, Bazaar has helped to shape the Australian fashion industry over the past two decades and the ripple effect of its closure cannot be underestimated. This is not just a media story. It's a bigger story about fashion, culture and art. And now been less ways for Australian creative talent to be showcased and celebrated. So, you know, we were talking about um, our trips recently and you mentioned that um, you have a, a relation, I think you said it was yeah, a... Um, so the, yeah. I actually was really thinking quite a lot about this while I was away prior to the, the Bauer announcement of, of those titles not um, coming back into life, you know, after that pause during COVID. And, but more I was thinking about the regional paper network and how dramatically it has been impacted by um, the News Corp decisions to let those titles go because I went up to the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales recently and uh, visited Tweed Regional Museum in Mwilumba and my cousin-in-law is actually a curator of the regional museums up there and there was an incredible uh, installation about a lot of local stories, historical families um, from the community and within those displays there were newspaper clippings and really high, beautiful high-res images from you know 40, 60, almost 80 years ago some of them and they'd been sourced from you know the local paper archives and we were chatting about um, you know how sad it was that those publications would no longer be operating in a lot of regional communities and her concern was also about what that means for us um, sort of remembering and honouring really um, Im important stories in communities re upon reflection but also moving forward. What does it mean for the broader community? How are we going to actually consume and connect with those local stories um, outside of the natural word of mouth that happens? You know, there's a, an enormous amount of local Facebook groups that talk, have that sort of amplified word of mouth. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to find out or consume or determine what's going on in my local community, you know, through the lens of the gossip of the local <laughs> Facebook groups. So it's just um, what does it mean for us more broadly as communities, particularly in regional Australia, if we don't have an editorial lens or, um, you know, someone pushing or investigating and scratching the surface of what's happening in our regions? Yeah, there was even um, talk about um, how uh, the local journalists keep councils on us too, right? So mm -hmm. you've got property developers that might be doing the wrong thing, they'll investigate and and, um, and hold them to account. Well, who's going to do that going forward? Mm -hmm. yeah, we're going to catch that's not going to be there anymore. Yeah, we're certainly going to be poorer for it, that's for sure. I also, I keep saying that we're going to be st more stupid for it too. <laughs> Yeah, I have to admit as well that, you know, News Corp more broadly cops obviously a lot of sort of criticism and, and critical eyes around its um, alleged biases or influence on government and, and decision-making and so on. But um, I think when it's at scale like this, the removal of, of so many titles and the role that they play in those communities, it, it gives it a very different all of a sudden, you know, you can go from being quite altruistic about what the media should and shouldn't do to actually understanding that the absence of media, irrespective of what bias may, you know, apply to that media is is even worse, I think, for those communities. And then for, the, for Bauer, um, 
obviously some of those titles are really, you know, related to fashion and other ultimately reflect the fact that those other industries are also being adversely affected at the moment with the pandemic um, and therefore the titles that, that, that rely on the advertising revenue from those industries are also hurting. But there's quite a lot of health titles that are being deleted there too. So in a time when we're looking for as much information as we can about how to look after ourselves and maintain good health, uh, in a health pandemic, um, I'm a bit worried about the gap that that leaves and also the opportunity that opens up for, I guess, the um, anti-establishment style health um, and wellness self-appointed experts to uh, create platforms on social media that go, you know, sort of untested or unless TGA just keeps slapping fines on minor celebrities for things that they say about heat lamps um, <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> yeah, there's just not the fact-checking then, is there, that, um, that comes with um, publications and, and publishing houses like, like Bauer. What do, you think um, it, what do you think it means for brands? I know everybody talks at length about citizen journalism. What do you think it might mean for brands and the way that they um, communicate and publish their own content um, in terms of not... You mean from, from a fact-checking point of view? Yeah. Do you think that they need to hold themselves to higher account or I'm just wondering... Well, if, like... they, if, if they don't, then the consumer will. Mm. The consumer's not stupid at the end of the day. They they, they will see through, see through any... Um, any fake news for once of one of a better word. Yeah. But I think the consumers will go through it. If they're not being transparent, um, then the consumers will go elsewhere, yeah. Definitely. I think too it opens up those brands to more risk if they're not testing themselves. Um, I think the role that, you know, PR and communications agencies have often played, and this is something that we are very upfront and honest with our clients about when we're working with them is we're going to play the devil's advocate and be the cynical um, audience when we're testing our messaging and preparing for campaigns or for new programs because um, often the way that we market in, in, a, in a true essence is you think about who is most likely to adopt, who is most likely to want this product or service and how do we make sure that we're positioning ourselves to ensure that that audience understands how we can solve that problem or, or um, positively impact their lives. But when it comes to PR and communications, you need to then say, who are those who are least likely to adopt? And um, there's always going to be a percentage of people who are relevant or detractors, but um, you know, there's a full spectrum and we need to make sure that we're not blinding ourselves to people who may be a little more cynical or less likely to adopt the most positive version of a brand or the most positive version of a product or service. So um, I well, think that's, that's why that's why I love what we do. We, we approach everything with that editorial lens. Um, we might not be journalists. We've got journalists that work in our organisation. Um, but everything that we do, we approach with an, that editorial lens. We we look at, you know, what is the cynic gonna, going to think, going to say about this? And we advise our clients that, you know, you tread carefully here. You don't, you're not to say those sorts of things. This will backfire if you if you do go down that path. That's that's what that's what our job is, and that's what I love about our job. Me too. I wonder if um, 
you know, one of my most hated words associated with our industry is spin, probably second only to people using PR as a verb. And I'm mm -hmm. hoping that this it's this really horrible time that's happening right now and we do have, co you know, colleagues who are former journalists and friends who work in journalism and have a healthy appreciation and respect for the role that the media plays in being that third party um, sort of independent voice. Um, I think that uh, as an industry, um, PR professionals, we need to hold ourselves to higher account because if we don't have journalists testing us and questioning us to the degree that we have in the past, then we we need to formulate processes and and um, I guess self awareness to make sure that that we're still testing our clients and testing ourselves because otherwise we can be become um, guilty of the same bubble that we know can exist in advertising world. Yeah, it's a really, really, really good point. Really good point. And you know, the what um, Kelly Rush said, you know, bizarre that it do, we don't have that platform to um, for Australian fashion designers now to to showcase. So, so what happens? What happens with them? They've got to compete on that American stage or the European stage now to to get people mm -hmm. to see them, um, understand where they're coming from, you know. Yeah, there's huge knock-on effects for Australian industries. Um, you know, we're, we're at a time where we're leaning into, I guess, um, you know, domestic uh, or manufacturing. Yeah. You know, we're talking about let's, let's get more innovate, more local manufacturing happening again. I think we've become acutely aware of the importance of having supply and production in within your own country and and also innovation and and um, new products within your own country because all of a sudden the world feels very big and and far away versus the internet interconnected you know experience that we had just six months ago and um i think it's incredibly sad because what does it mean for you know creative and arts industries have been suffering big time and this is you know another um creative industry mm. that has no platform to introduce themselves to or be showcased um, in a really credible way. So it, we're leaning back towards self-promotion. Obviously, you know, digital it just becomes more and more and more important, but um, often the, the, the customer journey relies upon those third-party and, and sort of credible touch points alongside self-promotion and owned media. Um, yeah, so it's going to get it's going to get trickier and trickier, and and perhaps a new opportunity opens up for um, brands, and particularly larger multi-brand, uh, multinational, and um, large Australian organisations to consider: do they have an opportunity, but also maybe an obligation to consider being publishers themselves in some yeah. form or another, not only publishing their own brands and their own content, but um, you know, those that are relevant to their audiences and sharing content of, of similar and, and complementary organisations and brands. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that um, you actually wanted to raise, Francis, was around um, the, about brands. You know, we're, we're in a situation now where Melbourne is in lockdown, doesn't look like it's going to um, come out of lockdown in any time soon. God knows what's going to happen here in New South Wales. You know, touch wood that we're going to 
social distance over this weekend and um, and look after everybody around us. But it's an interesting situation for companies and for brands when we've got you know so much happening in different parts of the country. That what does that mean for brands and companies right now? Yeah, that's definitely something that we've been discussing as a team as well with um, national campaigns and communications for organisations and brands. We always think about nuances and 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 the various different behaviours happening in different target audiences or geographies. But I think that right now it's really tricky to strike that balance between empathy and being empathetic to what's happening and being patronising. Because if you're talking to someone um, who's in Perth who may tick the box of, you know, 10 of the things that define your target audience and someone in Melbourne who ticks those same 10 boxes um, with all the, you know, traditional measures of demographic and socioeconomic and income and all those various things, they're going to receive messages very, very differently and with a different mindset and frame of reference when everybody in Melbourne today is wearing a mask and everyone in Perth today is probably planning uh, which footy match they're going to on the weekend or what restaurant they're going to dine at um, or bar they're going to go to on Friday night. Like it's a such worlds apart. And um, I think that even consuming media recently, I'm starting to see a difference between, um, particularly in broadcast, you can hear and, and sense the differences in tone between pub- publications and media that are operating out of Sydney and Queensland um, and Perth, uh, you know, WA and South Australia versus um, Victoria and specifically Melbourne. Um, there's just a different tone and frame around things because they're living and breathing it right now. Uh, down there versus in Queensland where, um, you know, we didn't end up crossing the border when we went north because it was um, it was around the time the borders opened and there were five-hour waits and checks to make sure you weren't travelling from um, Victoria and they were hunting Victorian num- number plates on the highway. So <laughs> we decided to stay this side of the border and keep away from all of that, even though we're from New South Wales. Um, but, you know, they've been really diligent in Queensland and as a result have been able to maintain a lot of freedoms and have a very different experience. Um, Yeah, so I just think it's an interesting time for brands to think about less about how they traditionally segment their audiences and maybe more about what are the, what's the mindset and what's impacting my audience based on their geography, um, maybe their their socio, their their job status. you know, the industry that they work in could have an enormous impact on how they're thinking or feeling. Like if you work in hospitality and tourism, things are really tricky and will be really tricky for a prolonged period of time, but maybe not if you live in Perth. So you've got to think about lots of different factors and think more about mindset and behaviour than ever before and less about historical purchasing habits or, um, you know, the way that they used to consume or used to interact with your brand. So refresh your thinking around those things. It was interesting. Uh, uh, the Premier for Victoria came out yesterday talking about how uh, people aren't following the rules. They're not social distancing. They're still um, having people over to their houses. They're having parties. He's um, He looks really, really frustrated. It would be interesting to see from a behavioural um, science 
point of view, what can I do differently? People are, are frustrated, I guess, from being in their second lockdown. Um, they've, they've kind of had enough um, and are, are not obeying the rules as, as, as closely as they probably should be, and that's why the, the numbers are continuing to rise. So it'd be interesting, you know, we, we should talk to our mate Chris White and, and find out what he thinks um, the government should be doing. Definitely. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Chris would really be able to share with us some insights on that sort of fatigue. I think that that's definitely been, um, you know, we talk about cognitive overload. Um, one thing that can happen is is when you're faced with a whole lot of information that reinforces why you should do something, but you've been having to make decisions again and again that you don't necessarily want to but have to, you might reach a point at which it's just all too hard. So um, you opt for what's easy. Um, and I have to admit I did have a chuckle in the last week about the um, Karen from Brighton, whose name is not Karen, but unfortunately, you know, we're continuing with the, the Karen. But, um, you know, she's sick of walking around the streets of Brighton. And in a non-COVID environment, that would be a completely practical and reasonable frustration that you get sick of walking the same streets. Um but uh, there was a really funny exchange back from Dan Andrews about, you know, you might be bored, but it's better than being in intensive care. And then she came back and said, I'm glad I provided a bit of light entertainment during the pandemic. So it's it's nice to see that some Australian sense of humour is still being able to um, <laughs> crack its way through the, the immense uh, pain that our Melbourne friends are going through right now. But, yeah, I think a second lockdown is particularly um, challenging mentally for people who are having to go back to things that they had hoped they had moved on from. And I think it's a warning sign for the rest of us that this is not going to be linear. We have to anticipate that there's going to be steps forward and steps back and sideways and it's not just going to be a case of this is the next phase, tick the box, move on. Yeah. Mm. It's um, it's a struggle, right? People are really going to struggle through this next this next phase. Well, what I'm excited about is is um, the approach that you've been taking with our business and with our team around not waiting for a horizon or not um, waiting for a specific milestone to be reached before we um, take on new projects or progress with new ideas. And I think that that's kind of where we need to be sitting. Um, you and I attended a growth faculty um, event this week uh, with Jim Collins and uh, the thing that really sat with me was him talking about that if you're too optimistic and you tie that optimism to a time frame you're setting yourself up for failure so if you're saying that's okay we can get through this because by Christmas this is where we're going to be then if that date comes and you have not reached your expectations, then you fall apart. You've got to find all of your strength and optimism all over again. Pick yourself up Whereas, off the floor, yeah. Yeah, if we, yeah. If we have res resolve and faith to um, work through and achieve things as we go, we're more likely to um, pull ourselves away from feeling frustrated or depressed or feeling like we're never going to, because it's, yeah, it's just a new way as opposed to waiting for it to be over. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, you can't sit around and wait for it to be over because it may never be over. And once this, mm. and that's the other thing that Jim Collins said yesterday too, right? He said every decade there's a major hurdle that businesses are going to have to face. So this is not going to be a pandemic that goes away. It'll, they'll, in, in 10 years' time, there'll be something else that pops up that you all have to deal with as well. So 
you know, it's just mm. building, building mm. resilience and, and doing what doing what you said. We just get on with it, right? Definitely, yeah. definitely. And just, um, you know, honouring the various feelings that you have along the way, but, <laughs> yeah, not getting married to being the super optimistic person in the room nor leaning too heavily into being the pessimist in the room. No, absolutely, absolutely. Hey, um, guess what? 25 minutes. We're at our time. And look at that. Holiday brain, not too bad. Yeah, you did all right. Well done. And, 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 and a little bingle on the way as well. So, <laughs> All right. Well, you've been listening to uh, Francis Dwyer, the general manager of the Impact Agency, and myself, Nicole Webb, the CEO. And we hope you have a very safe week and we'll talk to you again soon.